happy snowy Sunday morning, everyone. Welcome to Free Life Church Online. Trust that everyone is cozying up at home. Thank you for joining us, even virtually. Before we get started, I want to share a quick testimony of God's goodness. And something I love is that what I'm about to share that was submitted just a few days ago is a follow-up testimony. We get to hear how things are, are walked out in normal life. Here it goes. A week after my eyes were healed during the October 2020 fast. So that's an amazing start because there's already a healing that took place not that long ago. After that, I developed sciatic pain. I had never had it before and was experiencing so much pain and discomfort that it was difficult to do simple tasks like getting dressed or putting on shoes. I lived with it for a few months. Very normal. I lived with it for a few months and then thought to go up for prayer after a service in January. I continued on with normal life and about 10 days later realized the pain was gone. I have not had any more pain since then. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you do this work. You do this work and you are trustworthy. We're going to begin with that uh, and we're going to have... Quick announcements, and then we'll have Clay. So let's roll the tape. Good morning, Free Life Church, and welcome. To those of you visiting with us online, we're glad you're here. If you are visiting us in person, please stop by the front desk to receive your welcome bag. There is a connection card inside to help us stay in touch with you. Our corporate fast is running from February 1st through the 21st. There are several ways you can participate whether you are fasting every day or simply a meal. We will be hosting prayer and worship gatherings throughout this time. We welcome you to join us. The dates and times for these gatherings are listed on our website. Please let us know if you are participating in the fast. Visit our events page for more details. Our next encounter night is coming up. Join us for a powerful night of worship and praise on February 20th at 6.30 p.m. here at Free Life Church. More details are on our events page. Are you currently serving in Kids Place or have you been thinking about becoming part of our team? Register today for our first annual retreat and training. Please visit our website for more information. To those with children in Kids Place, the meeting originally scheduled for January 31st will be rescheduled to a later date. Please stay tuned for more information. Senior youth in grades 9 through 12 are invited to a lock-in to enjoy games, food, fellowship, and teaching on February 26th through the 27th. Students may be dropped off at the regular time on Friday and must be picked up by noon on Saturday. Chaperones will be present. For questions or more information, please visit our website or contact Senior High Youth Leader Luke Laparo. God is moving in our community and world. Testimonies are pouring in of how God is at work. Do you have a testimony? Please share it with us at testimonies at freelifechurchva.com. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning, Free Life Church. I hope you're all well. I, um, it's good to not hear or see you, but it's good to know that you're there. 
So I welcome you this morning. It is different. As much as we try to make it not different, it is. It's different for me. It's different for you. Being at home is different for me, not having wonderful people here. But uh, we do have some, a brave few. So you may see me looking around. I'm not pretending. There are, there are people here. But um, it's wonderful to have you with us this morning. And we are in the process of a fast. And last week we were not able to come either, and uh, so this week when it started to snow, it's a difficult decision for me, just to be honest. I struggle to make it. I don't like not having, uh, not coming together, but it is good also to allow people to be safe, and, but the wonderful people that have come out to do the recording and, and, and the AV and all the things that we have, so we thank you guys for coming out. But we are one-third of a way through a fast, and... Um, so for those who are fasting, that's awesome. For those who are not, you need to hear that it's something we do together corporately, so we all uh, enjoy the, the breakthrough, the benefits, the things that God does we share as a family and as a body. If you are fasting and you need to hear not to be intense and to be wise and maybe seek medical advice if you need to, then hear it. If you're fasting and you need to hear, keep going, be strong, then, then hear that, whatever it may be, but it's, we've got two more weeks, and you know, not everyone's fasting for a lot, the whole time, a few, very few are probably doing, you know, one meal a day, some people are doing three days, but they'll do it at the end, or whatever it is for you, but we will be meeting uh, this coming Wednesday, which is the 10th, for a prayer meeting here in the building, and we encourage you to come out and to pray with us. And then we will also be meeting the following week, Wednesday, but then we will meet, which is the, 20, uh, the 18th, we will meet 18th, 19th, 20th, and the 21st, every night, four nights in a row, to pray, and then we will end that with an encounter night on Saturday night, so we encourage you to come out for that. For um, the 10th, this coming Wednesday, God's really put it on my heart, one of the prayer points you'll see in the email is to pray for resources. And with all that's been happening in the last little while, just with COVID-19 and, and many people being out of work or just different challenges and struggles, God just put it on our heart to pray for resources. So we are going to pray into resources, yes, for the kingdom, yes, for the church, but also for family and, and for you. So if you would like to join us on Wednesday and you are leading a business or even just an employee in that business, or looking to start a business, or anything to do with resources, you're in need of a new job, you're in need of a job, um, or you're feeling like there's a career shift, whatever it may be, anything to do with resources, finances, provision, uh, please come on Wednesday, and we are actually, bring your business cards, bring contracts that, you, that you're just about to uh, pitch to, to people, or contracts that you're trying to get signed. Bring anything you can, and we would love to, we're gonna break up, and have some people up here, and we're going to pray over those contracts. We're going to actually lay hands on contracts and business cards and business names and whatever it may be. So please come out for that. It's wonderful. We've seen God do amazing things uh, when we've done this in the past. So that will be on Wednesday. I also know that many of you are aware that today is a football game of some importance. And uh, so I have until then to preach no, I won't do that. But um, I want to just start before I actually, I'll pray before we go, but I, 
Today, when I woke up and I saw the snow, it reminded me a little bit of the story of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. He is an incredible man of God. He died in 1892, so quite a while ago. But it was at age 16 in a snowstorm, he actually yearned to be saved, and he went to different churches, and, but he never heard a message really of the truth of the gospel, and he never heard anything that gripped his heart. But he yearned to be saved, but he never went to any place that told him how, believe it or not. And, but at age 16, it was in a snowstorm, I'll point backwards because there's a door over there, sorry, that may make no sense to some of you watching, but there's snow just behind this wall. And uh, he yearned to be saved, and so he trudged in a snowstorm to go find a church that was still meeting, and um, finally he came to a small chapel, and the minister also couldn't make it that day because of the snow. So a humble, uneducated farmer stood up and read one verse, and he read this, Isaiah 45:22, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Look, and be saved. And that day, at age 16, Charles Spurgeon looked to Christ by himself. He suddenly understood it is by faith, and he looked to Christ just in his own heart and in his own way. He looked to Christ, put his faith and his hope in Jesus Christ, and was saved in the middle of a snowstorm. And um, the, world, the world became a little different because that one man got saved, and that happened in a snowstorm. And uh, his favorite hymn was this, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I first received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. Wonderful hymn. And if you're watching and that has not happened to you, you are not saved, you are not with the Lord. You've never actually done that. I encourage you right now, don't wait, to look to Him. Look to Christ in your heart. Look to the Lord. Put your faith, your trust. That means to rely on, to lean upon Him as your hope for this life and the life to come. So, I'm going to pray. Then we're going to get into God's Word. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your Son. I thank You for the cross. Lord, and I thank you that no snowstorm, no storm of any sort in life will change the truth of the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder if where you are in your homes, if you could just close your eyes for a moment, if you're comfortable with that, even put out your hands, if you're comfortable with that. Father, I just pray peace. I say your words, Jesus, that you said in John 14. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. My peace I give to you. I pray peace over your people and over this house that we are in, over their houses that they're in. Peace. And I thank you for that. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So, we... We are in the middle of a fast, so I'll talk a little bit about fasting. I'm just kind of going to be relaxed a little bit today and go back and forth between almost like two subjects. But <clears throat> last week I was going to try and end the series that we started with the King's Kingdom and the King's Bride. 
and uh, we've heard some wonderful testimonies just coming out of the series, so, which is great, and uh, so I'd like to continue that today, and, but I also want to talk a little bit about fasting. Now, if you were part of the two-week fasting teaching that I did, which was actually four parts, two, two parts each week, you are now an expert in fasting, and, uh, or at least the knowledge thereof, and so I will send people your way when they ask me questions. But the king's kingdom and the king's bride, and we're looking at what does the scripture say when it comes to the church, when it comes to this great kingdom, which we touched on the first week mainly, but then also the church. What does the Bible say? What is God's original intention for the church? So we've looked at the word church itself, ecclesia, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, what it means that the church is actually a holy nation, a nation within the world, even though we're scattered all over the place. And then the last time we met, a household of God, the family of God. And um, so today I want to speak a little bit about the pillar and foundation of truth, the building or the temple. That's, that's two different things. The church is called the pillar and foundation of truth. The church is called the building of God or the temple of God and the children of light. So I hope to get there. But before we do that, could you turn to Luke 5? If you're at home, you have a Bible and uh, pick it up, open it, turn to Luke 5, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the third book, very, very easy to find, and uh, I want to speak to you a little bit about fasting first. This text, Luke 5, has gripped my heart uh, for many years, uh, specifically this part. It feels like sometimes this is a part of my bones on the inside of me, this text, so I'm going to talk quickly about fasting as fast as I can, go over some of the stuff I did with the course, and then try to relate it back to the series. But I also want to also say happy birthday to my friend Sam, if he's watching. That was a few days ago. He's one of my very close friends, and I forgot his birthday. So if I give him a shout-out, then maybe I'll be forgiven. So, Luke 5. Luke 5, verse 33. We're going to look at fasting quickly. <clears throat> then they said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours, eat and drink. That's, they were said that to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So even here, Jesus alludes to the church, the bride. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one pits a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But the new wine must, must, must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new for he says the old is better. So, if we, they asked the question about fasting, but if we look, if you look through the Old Testament and you look as to why they fasted as Jewish people, because, you know, to them, when this was happening, they were still in the Old Testament. Jesus hadn't died yet. So they had a context for fasting, and um, he hadn't died and, should I say, resurrected. Uh, and often salvation. So they weren't saved in the new covenant way. So they had a context for 
fasting. And so they asked a question because what they were doing wasn't matching their context. And so why did they fast in the Old Testament? I'm just going to kind of read the first one I'll explain, but then we'll just read a list. And I did this more extensively in the course. But they fasted predominantly to humble themselves. The phrase to humble yourself in, in the Bible, all through the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, to them meant fasting. To humble themselves to fasting, it was like to say the same thing. If you look at Leviticus 16, I think the notes will come up if, if they do. It says this, This shall be a statute forever for you, verse 29, In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, this is God giving the law to Moses, and he says, in, this, in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your soul and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So every once a year, they would have the day of atonement. The priest would take blood of a scapegoat or blood of the lamb, and they would go into the most holy place and they would atone for the sins of themselves and for the people for one year, and they would have to repeat it every year. But on that day, they were commanded to fast. And in Acts 27, it actually is just called the Day of Atonement. It's just called the fast, the day of the fast. So fasting was tied to their, in a sense, righteousness, them purchasing redemption through the blood of bulls and goats. But it says... You shall afflict your souls. That word is ananafesh in the Hebrew. And it literally means to humble my life, to humble the soul, my life, my soul. And in Psalm 35, David, David says, I humbled myself with fasting. It's the same Hebrew phrase, ananafesh. In Leviticus 23, which I don't think you have in coming up before you, it actually says that on this day, it shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls, that's fasting, and offer an offering by fire to the Lord, that's for the sin, and you shall do no work on that day, for it is the day of atonement. So, to fast, to afflict the soul, or to humble yourself, and also to mourn, those phrases were used interchangeably in the Scripture, in that context. And so if you look at, for example, a famous scripture, a well-known scripture, 2 Chronicles 7, it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And so people call prayer meetings to try and repent their way on behalf of them and the nation out of some situation or some calamity. But they would have understood as a Hebrew people, that means they're calling a fast. Because to humble yourselves literally was to fast. Even David said, I chastened, I disciplined, I chastened my soul with fasting. So fasting was a way of humbling themselves. So I'm going to go through this quick. It was also a way to return in your hearts to the Lord. Joel 2 says that. Rend your hearts and not your garments and turn to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. They fasted for others. Isaiah 58, the true fast is that which is done for others. They fasted in times of mourning because it was... Jesus actually used the, the word fast and mourn interchangeably in one verse in Matthew chapter 9. They fasted for wisdom, for revelation, for understanding. You'll find that in Daniel 10. They fasted for warfare, for God's intervention in times of crisis and calamity. 
2 Chronicles. That's with Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 20. They fasted for direction when they didn't know where do we go, how do we, what do we do? And, and I've encouraged business people, fast as, as much as you need to for direction, for vision, and for these things you'll be amazed how God answers. They also fasted in the New Testament to appoint leaders, apostles, prophets, and so forth. So, but what had become a fasting in Jesus' day? Jesus spoke about fasting. Jesus, the Son of God himself, fasted. And so one of the reasons for fasting, like we've said in the Old Testament, it was linked to righteousness. It was tied to righteousness. It was uh, to afflict the soul, to humble myself and to afflict the soul. So if you think about it, they were commanded on the Day of Atonement, this is a day of fasting. It was a command. And it actually says in Leviticus 16 and 23, if you do not fast on this day, you will be cut off from the people. So that meant you would not be receiving the redemption of sin. You would be cut off. You wouldn't be part of those people who had purchased righteousness, in a sense, right standing with God for that year through the blood of bulls and goats. So to them, it became very legalistic. Very, they had to fast on that one day. Most fasts in the Bible, by the way, were one day. But then when it came to uh, grace, and by grace I mean unmerited favor, we are saved by grace, it also says in Leviticus 23 that if you do not fast on this day, you will be cut off, but you also, they weren't allowed to work. I think I, think I have it here. Um, for any person who is not afflicted, Leviticus 23, on that same day shall be cut off from his people, and any person who does any work on that same day, I will destroy, the Lord speaking, from among his people. Why? Because any person, it's not this harsh God. You know, he was pointing, actually, to love and to grace. He's saying, I need you to understand that nobody can purchase or earn salvation. Anyone who thinks they can earn salvation will end in destruction. So he gives them a physical example in the Old Testament. Fasting was the Lord's, or should I say, was part of the Lord's way. One of the ways he was teaching them that they can't by themselves deal with what is wrong with mankind. We can't fix the issue, the disease of sin. We can't ourselves fix it. And so he says to them, whenever it comes to righteousness, when it comes to being free from sin, having guilt removed, then I need you to humble yourself. So he gave them a physical act of humbling themselves. I need you to humble yourself with fasting and do absolutely no work. It's pointing to grace. You cannot earn it, and you cannot, your self-righteousness will never do it, ever. You cannot be good enough. It's, so humble yourself, come to me, recognize that works will never do it, and come to me that you may have life. He's pointing to New Testament grace, favor, unmerited favor, because of Jesus. It's pointing to the cross. And by the time it came to Jesus' day, if you think of this, because this is the context of Luke 5, fasting had become a point of spiritual pride. It had been completely flipped upside down. What was given to teach them something and yes, it's still powerful. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing, powerful weapon. It really is. It's a gift from the Lord to be able to do it, even though it doesn't feel nice. 
Even in Luke 18, Jesus is telling a parable, or he's, telling, he's speaking about the Pharisees, and he says, the Pharisees who fast twice a week, and they would stand there and say, I thank you that I'm not like that man. I mean, literally, it's, imagine the self-righteousness. And that is in Luke 18. They would fast, I think it was Mondays and Thursdays. So they had reduced one of the greatest tools given them by the Lord to humble themselves, to gain His perspective, to point towards the cross, to point towards grace, and now it was being used in Jesus' day as a means of self-exaltation. <laughs> it had been flipped completely upside down, and once again, as we see all through human history, just the nature of the old nature, they had traded the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ, for self-righteousness. So, here comes the question. Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? This is what they said to Jesus. And make prayers often, but yours eat and drink. Well, who asked the question? If you go to Mark 2, it says that's the other Mark, Matthew, and Luke talk about the same story. Mark 2, it says the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Okay? So, Mark, Matthew 9 says the disciples of John came and asked him. So, it was John the Baptist's. JTB, I call him JTB because when you write a lot, you start writing JTB. It's just shorter. But John the Baptist's disciples were fasting because the Pharisees were fasting. And they come to Jesus, and his disciples are not fasting. And they say, why aren't they fasting like us? <laughs> Perhaps it was maybe some old friends of Andrew and John who were Jesus' disciples, but they used to be John the Baptist's disciples. You can go read that in John 1. And they went to Jesus. Maybe it was their old friends. I don't know. Old friends say, hey, how come those guys seem much freer and happier than we are? We're fasting. They're not. What's, what's happening? And they asked him, why aren't they fasting? And Jesus says, we read it before. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come and the bridegroom will be taken away. Then he spoke a parable to them about garments. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. And then he spoke about wineskins. I mean, just, let me just read it to you. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new, so you cut up the new garment because there's a piece missing from an old one, and you patch it on, and it doesn't match. And then once you wash it, I think Matthew... Matthew 9 calls it unshrunk cloth. They used to wear like cheesecloth. And so once you wash it like, like we all do, then it shrinks. And no one puts, and then once you wash it, the, the new patch will shrink and tear away from the old garment and it makes it tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine will burst and the wineskins will be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. So... They come and they ask Jesus a question about fasting, and he says something that is so much bigger than fasting, but he uses the question of fasting to teach something about his kingdom. And he talks about garments. Garments in the Old Testament have to do with identity. Wineskin has to do with the wine of God, has to do with the things of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, new wine, the new and living way that Jesus was coming to do. But what they used to do is they used to, as I said, when you would wash something, like when you buy it at the store, then you take it through the dry and it shrinks. It's the same kind of concept. They would buy something, 
then they would wash it, then it would shrink and it wouldn't be the same. And so you cannot take a new garment, cut it up and try patch an old one. The colors won't match. It just, it just doesn't work. And that in the Old Testament had to do with identity. I know I've said this before, but we need to really understand and hear and live and walk this out. Because identity, you used to have warrior's garments, priestly garments, kingly garments, worshippers' garments, all manner, and you could tell from a distance who a person was because of what they wore. Wineskin had to do with they would take a, a leather pouch, put wine in there before, and it would ferment actually inside. And the gases and the potency as it would increase would expand the wineskin and stretch it, and it would become tight. And then they would, in a sense, the wine would, would happen inside there. But then what would happen is they would get used to that. Then they would, you couldn't take new wine and put it into a wineskin when that was empty because the vinegar and the new wine and the process of fer fermentation would crack and break the skins and burst it, and that wouldn't work. So he uses a very practical example to explain a question, to, to give an answer about a question about fasting. And it's interesting why. Well, he says, one will change because what I'm, I'm going to give you, a robe of righteousness, because fasting was tied to righteousness, one is going to change of something that has to do on the outside. One is going to change with something that I've come to put on the inside, the Holy Spirit. And you'll ruin both garments if you try to fix the one that you're currently using. And you hear that in church all the time. It's, or should I say, people have this perception, I need to get better before I go to church. I need to, no friends, you come as you are. You see, your identity is changed completely. He's saying you cannot take this new creation life that I've come to provide that I've come to do, you cannot take this new creation life and combine it with the old. You cannot take the new covenant that I've come to give by my blood, Matthew 26, and try and combine it with the old. I've come to fulfill this and give you something brand new. You must come to the cross. You must. You must come to the cross. Without the cross, it doesn't happen. You, we, we must find Christ at the cross. And he died and shed his blood for a new covenant. And so they're coming and saying, why aren't they doing, in a sense, what we're doing? He says, they, I cannot afford to have the old and the new mixed. Because John the Baptist was there pointing to Jesus, saying, he's the one, he's the Messiah. Think about it. But his disciples were willing to believe his message, but still wanted the old religious structure. So they were fasting when the Pharisees were fasting. It's like, you know, the truth comes across and it causes a shift in an adjustment when we say, I like the message, um, but I don't know, I think I'll just add it to my life. I, I don't want to embrace it fully. You know, that's a whole new way of living. And while I'm not, you know, that's inconvenient. So I'll take this wonderful message and I'll add it to, like a patch. We don't add Jesus to our life. We give him our life. And he gives us his life. Abundant life. With power. With authority. And people see from a distance who you are. Because your identity's changed. Just like you wear 
a garment in the Old Testament. There's something changes inside of you, and you are different. The Bible says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live, to me, for me to go on living in my life is Christ, not self, Christ. He is my life. For me to die is gain. It's not loss, it's gain. Then, what about the wine? He says, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. Jesus came to open a new and living way. That's what Hebrews talks about. A new and living way. He brought a new and living way, and it's based on the relationship that comes through faith in Christ, and it's a new and living way. Completely justified. Completely made guiltless, innocent through the blood of the Lamb. Zechariah pointed to it, said there's something coming that is not by might, that's military, not, not, military might, not by power, that's uh, the strength of a man's arm, what we can do, self-righteousness, but by my spirit. And in the Old Testament, an old prophet said there's something coming that's different from what we have now, and it's by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus, they come to him and say, why aren't they doing what we're doing? And he says, you cannot, I cannot allow the two to mix. When I leave, when I ascend, in those days, which is today, they'll fast in those days. But I cannot have them fast as you're doing. It must be in a different way. It must be different. Because we can't pour in old ways of thinking, old perspectives, old motivations into something brand new. You see, when we look at the Pharisees, when we read the Bible today, we look at Pharisees and it's almost like we think they're like bad people. Like they're so blind, they're so religious, they're so... But you know that they were good people. <laughs> they were good men. They, they, they were doing what they thought was right. But they were trapped in religion. And it's hard to break out of religion. Why? Why is it hard to break out of religion? Many of you watching, and I'm, I'm not using religion as the term as a religion, but I'm using religion in a sense almost in a bad way in terms of religious exercise, self-righteousness, everything on the outside but nothing on the inside. So I'm going to read you this. What is religion in that sense? It's often something God-given that God is no longer in. And it happens for various reasons. I'll give you two. First one, the purpose for which he gave it, whatever it is, has already come, and we did not have eyes to see, nor ears to hear. For example, Jesus Christ and the Pharisees. He said over and over, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, I am the reason all of that was happening. I am the reason for the Old Testament. I am God made flesh. I am the word written down. I am, I am who I am. They couldn't see it because they had taken what God had given to point to him and made it all about that instead of what it pointed to. So we, we all understand that. But why else does religion, why is it hard to break? Because God will give a spiritual practice, a spiritual truth, a spiritual 
Well, maybe a truth, a spiritual exercise, a, a, a principle of some sort, a sacrament, some would call it, whatever it may be. But the conviction with which we do what He has given us to do, whatever that is, has been long forgotten. The heart conviction is forgotten. It's been replaced with repetitive tradition. Give you an example, the law, that was a good example. The snake on the pole. God instituted that. He put a, told Moses, put a snake on the pole, put it up let the, uh, for the healing of the Israelites when the snake was biting them in the desert. You know, in Hezekiah's day, they took that snake out of the treasuries of, of, of Israel and put it up against the wall and bowed down and worship it. It was something that God did once, and it was awesome and amazing and powerful, and it set people free. But they took something that was God-given and worshipped it, but He wasn't doing it like that anymore. This may offend some of you. Communion. It's something that is still God-given. Is there conviction in it? Any wineskin, any structure, any leadership structure, model of church, any, any wineskin, any structure, sometimes even if it's God-given, even if it's, in a sense, something that is good for the family, for this season or that season, any structure, any wineskin that is given, that is for a time. See, you cannot pour wine... You cannot pour the new wine, Jesus is saying, that I've come to bring into the old way. You cannot pour new wine into the old structure. When the power of the Spirit comes in the new and living way through the New Testament, I cannot have my disciples trying to live out an old structure and then try to take the new wine of what I've come to bring and pour it into the old structure because it will destroy the old structure. It's too strong. It's too powerful. It's the Spirit of the living God coming into an old structure that was meant for a season, and they were worshiping the structure, the system, instead of the one who gave it. So the question comes, why aren't they fasting? Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. Then they will fast. He's saying, I am going to send them to do something that you cannot yet see. I'm going to empower them in a way that people have not ever been empowered. I can't afford them to try and patch the old garment. I can't afford for them to try and fix the old by what I've come to bring. Because then you end up with two identities, two garments that are both destroyed, one both being cut up. You end up with two structures, with two wineskins, the new and the old. And the most tragic part of that is the, it will destroy any man-made structure. And man has done that all through history. God will move in power, bring a revival, whatever it may be, and then we put a wonderful structure around it. And it just ends up the second generation, third generation of that, what once brought power and life brings death and religion. We do that just naturally. We just try to, let's fix it. Let's, let's put structure. And structure is good. 
Structure is important, administration, professionalism and, and excellence, that, that's all good. But when it comes to the matters of the Spirit, it is what does the Spirit of God want to do? And this is what's happening here. They come in the old way with a good heart. And they say, why aren't they, why aren't they doing it like this? And he says, oh, no, 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 I've come to bring a new nature. I've come to bring a new covenant. I've come to bring a new heart. I've come to bring a new mind, the mind of Christ. I'm going to make you completely new on the inside. Completely new. Fresh, new. Not fix the old. Brand new. The old is dead. F brand new inside. And so they will fast like I fasted, not like you're fasting. Because you, the Son of God fasted. You think about that. But he fasted after he heard what? This is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Then the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness to fast. He fasted from righteousness, not towards it. He fasted from the love of the Father because I love him. He fasted in obedience to the Holy Spirit, not just we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this. And he said, why aren't they fasting? They will fast in those days when the Holy Spirit comes. They will fast in those days. They will fast like I am, not like you are. See, that's why I, I say this. I have found the new nature that comes with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We become partakers of, div of a divine nature. Peter talks about that. We get a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. We get a new mind. We have the mind of Christ as we read and study the Word and renew our minds through the Scripture and through worship and fellowship with the Spirit. Our mind, we have a renewed mind. And he, I find fasting pushes us back to the new nature, to the new mind, to the new heart. It makes our heart soft, pliable again in the Lord's hands, the potter and the clay. It helps renew our mind. It is something that is actually a gift from the Lord. See, a, a good father gives gifts that they're not just wonderful and fun. That's fine too. But a good father actually gives gifts that equip for purpose, that assist with destiny. The gifts they give press people into who they are. So God gave this gift in the Old Testament of fasting, <laughs> in a sense, to show people it's not self-righteousness. It's not by your works. I'm sending one who will die and make you brand new. And now in fasting in the New Testament, obviously it still has power. We still humble ourselves. We still go to him for many of those same reasons. But, but, with a different heart and in a different way, and God gives us this wonderful gift to empower the new man for the spirit to begin to rise up inside and to put the flesh down. And it empowers everything that Christ came to do because he gives gifts that equip and press us into who we actually are. I hope I'm making sense. He says, but in those days they will fast. When the Holy Spirit comes, yes, then they will fast, but in a new way. And so the reason I talk about this in this series, the heart behind this series, is actually very similar to this text. It's very similar to this text in the way that 
we're looking at what is the original intention for that we find in Scripture for the church of God. You know, for the people of God, for the new covenant that Christ brought. There's a, there's a power in God's church again. There's a, there's a, we need that. We need the power of God in the church. We need the life, the new wine that God comes to bring. And even then in the church, you know, everyone, we've heard it many times, everyone who's seen God's power or revival in the past, they long for that in their heart. But sometimes if it doesn't look like that, exact what happened, they don't even really believe it's the Lord. And God has to continually break us, break the boxes we have truth never changes the word never changes but he breaks the boxes and says look to me look to me it's me build a relationship with me come to me that you may have life and as we look at the church the ecclesia the governmental power and government of god on the earth in the church and we look at becoming who and what he intended it's similar to this text with fasting. Now, I find fasting helps us return in our hearts. It rem as Joel 2 says, it reminds us of who we are. It empowers the new nature. It empowers, in a sense, God's intention. So, when we look at the bride of Christ, 1 Timothy 3, says, these things are right to you, verse 14, 15, and 16, Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. The NIV says, I think, the foundation, the pillar and foundation of truth. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. You see, I started this series just to help us to see how much they had to work through and shift because this, this Luke 5 about the question that comes about fasting was really Jesus talking about the old covenant Judaism versus New Testament Christianity, and they're going to be so different, and we need to break out of this and embrace what he's brought. But yet this is all obviously wonderful because it's the heritage and the history of God, and it's the Word of God. But there's a new and living way that he's come to open. And so here we see the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy. It's the pillar and the foundation of truth. And so in the early on in the book of Acts, when they were dealing with what do we do, how do we live, because the, it changes the way they dressed, what they ate, how they worshipped, where they went to temple, how they spoke at home. Everything changed because Jesus came. And through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and through studying actually the Scriptures and seeing how are we to live, how do we give our, our whole lives to this thing, and then through that, we have the New Testament. But the church is called the pillar and foundation of truth. And it's interesting to me that Jesus went to the disciples in Mark 8. If you think about it now, he is going to leave the disciples. And he said to them, basically in John 20, I'm leaving. I'm leaving you with the truth. 
if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. That, he wasn't giving them power to forgive sin. No, only God can do that. He was saying to them, if you retain what I've given you, people's sins, the truth of forgiveness of Christ in the blood, you don't, it's like he left it with them. It's an amazing scripture. But here in Mark 8, he goes to these people. These are going to be, and Ephesians 2 talks about the foundation of the church. They are going to be the ones who birth it. They are there at the beginning. They are going to be there when the Holy Spirit comes. They are going to be there to define, like I said, to work through the process of what is this New Testament life? How then should we live? Like Francis Schaeffer wrote that great book. They are going to develop something that becomes known as the pillar and foundation of truth for life, for the church of God, for the ecclesia, for the bride of Christ. What do we do? How do we? And so he comes to them in Mark 8 and he gives them, he charges them, he gives them a warning. And he says, beware, I'll read it, Then he charged them and said to them, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Galatians 5 says, tells us why, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you're a baker, you know that. A little leaven. So Jesus comes to these people that he's going to say, I'm the foundation. The foundation of truth is Jesus Christ as a cornerstone. But it's going to develop. And through Acts and through the New Testament, we see the truth of God come out. And he says, all right, so beware then. He tells those who it starts with, beware, beware, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. What's that? It's the political spirit, that's Herod, and the religious spirit, that's the Pharisees. So in, John, in Luke 5, when they come and ask questions about fasting, he's dealing a little bit with the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't allow that to to distort what I've come to do. You will fast, yes, of course you will fast, but it will empower the new nature. It will power the spirit. Don't try and fix the old. Let go of the old, just like the old nature. That is crucified with Christ. For me to live is Christ. And so he says, he warns them, And it's interesting to me that Jesus would, in a sense, do that. Saying, listen, guys, beware. That's a strong word in the Hebrew. Be careful. Be aware. Watch out for the leaven that the Pharisees have. And that's not the, it's just the the religious spirit. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for the leaven of Herod. The political spirit and the religious spirit. And what I've found is that the religious spirit the spirit of all, the religiousness. You could call it a mindset, if you will, if you don't like the word spirit. But the religious spirit, it doesn't understand love. That's the best way I can. It it doesn't seem to grasp love. It just wants form and structure and rules. It doesn't understand love. And it's like it cannot fathom love. And so I found that the religious traditions of men, even if they were once, even if they were God-given, but when it becomes these religious traditions that we just go through, religious traditions don't seem to have the power to change man's heart. They can never empty, fill the empty space in the heart of mankind that makes man whole. But the love of God can. (laughs) The love of God can. The political spirit 
the way I see it is that it's like the political spirit and it enters the church and it filtrates into the church often and and then we realize oh we've become it's not just about being political it's when the political spirit overrides the truth and the simplicity and the power and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is unshackled, which is the same in any nation all over the world. <laughs> and the political spirit doesn't understand truth. It cannot fathom truth. That's why even the term politically correct is, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. No, friends, Jesus said, you have heard, but I say to you. You have heard, but I say to you. Jesus is the truth. The person of the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Pilate said to Jesus, well, what is truth? <laughs> the, 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 the political spirit doesn't understand truth. And so without being offended, I say to you, I believe with all my heart there is no policy that any man, government, or person, or man can create that will ever set man free. Because the truth sets free. The truth sets free from the real issue in the world. What's wrong with the world? The old nature of man, sin, and the truth of the gospel of Jesus. That sets free. And we can have as many policies as we want. They can make man comfortable. They can make a good nation. They can even be based on, which is wonderful. But the truth must come. We must come to the truth. And Jesus gives these ones who are going to birth and start this and work it out and write the scripture of the New Testament. And, and he said, guys, in this process, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. Be careful of the leaven of Herod. Don't let it leaven the lump of the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't take old structures and old motivations and, and pour it into what I've come to give you, the wine, because then what will happen? It will destroy the structure and the tragedy. The wine of God, the spirit, the power of God is wasted and goes into the ground because we're trying to patch. We're trying to add Jesus. I'll just take him and add him. I'll just put him onto my life. No, no. I have died for me to live as Christ. He has my whole life. When conviction starts to override culture, ah, then we're free. There is no other foundation, 1 Corinthians 3 says, that can be laid than that which is Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. So the church, is the, is the, the church of God is the pillar and foundation of truth. The ecclesia, the church, has truth to offer. Friends, if you're watching and you're part of the church, if you're saved, not just this church, the church, you have truth in your hand. I don't know if you know that. You have truth. You offer, here's the truth. And the truth the church has is the only answer for the issue in the world. <laughs> it's the only answer. Sometimes we have to change the way it comes across and the style or the method but the truth never changes, never changes. And I've seen, unfortunately, I've done it myself. We carry it around like, it's not, well, you know, I don't really want to upset people. Friends, it sets people free from death, from hell. <laughs> the foundation all rests on Jesus Christ. The truth 
is free. We also see, I'm just trying to work out what time I started. We also see that the church is called the building in the temple. I wish I could go into this fully, but you are God's building. It says it in 1 Corinthians 3.9. He says the church, and Paul writing to the Corinthians says, you are God's building. Ephesians 2 says we are the household of God. 1 Peter 2 says we are built into a spiritual house. So the church is actually the building of God. Let me read Ephesians 2 to you quickly. It says, verse 19, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. That's family. We talked about that. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, you see, the original guys, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, that's the foundation, in whom the whole building, that's you, that's you, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows, and there's a wonderful allegory we can go in on how they used to build and but being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It's not talking about a physical building. Acts 7, I think, verse 48 says, God no longer lives in buildings built by the hands of men. 1 Peter 2 calls you a spiritual house. He's saying there's a spiritual thing happening and you have become the new building in which God dwells. Now, for a Hebrew people, for a Jewish person, I don't think we realize how much this meant to them. Why? Well, <clears throat> God only inhabits, God only dwells in that which He designs. In the Old Testament, uh, the Scriptures may come up on the screen, you can go look at them separate at another time, but in the Old Testament, He gave the exact plans <laughs> for the tabernacle. He said, build it according to the pattern I showed you on the mountain. Exactly. Then I will come and dwell in it. With the temple of Solomon, he gave, 1 Chronicles 28, he gave, he says, David gave Solomon the temple, the, the plans which God had given him by the Spirit. So these physical buildings that God said, I'm going to dwell in there, if it's according to my design. And he seems to initiate it always with fire. The fire dwelt above the tabernacle, and then the glory filled the tabernacle. The fire dwelt above the temple, then the glory filled the temple. Then Acts comes, and Paul says, you are God's building, and the fire of God comes and rests above people's heads. You are now God's building. Individuals, not corporately individuals, so the glory of God can fill that person. And so as a Jewish person, they would have said, what? Why? Because to them, the ark of God, the ark of the covenant where the glory of God dwelt between the cherubim. If they just took that and they put it at some other God's feet, it was victory in battle. It was provision during pestilence. It was power over darkness, sin, disease, death. No one could touch, come near, harm, nothing. No nation, no demon, no person, no king could touch them if they had the ark. Now God says, you are my ark. You are my ark. I'll put that fire right inside you. Right in you. 
And then you see them in the New Testament. They walk around. They heal the sick. They cast out demons. They raise the dead. They preach the gospel. Why? In their minds, we are the building of God. No longer foreigners and strangers, the Bible says. You move from being a foreigner stranger to the kingdom of God to being a foreigner and a stranger to the world. And he seems to initiate it with fire. I, I really believe with all my heart, God only dwells in what he designs. And if you think about it, he then gifted people in, in, the, in the first tabernacle. He says he gave gifts to artisans and wood creations and carvers and, and, and craftsmen. He gave supernatural gifts for people to suddenly have this ability to build. And Why? To build according to his design. And then he did a similar thing with the temple. But I believe he longed for a time when he could dwell in something, not that he has to give gifts for people to build so he can dwell, so it's a, but that he can build in something which he himself makes personally. <laughs> I knit you together, Psalm 139. I made you. I knit you together in, my, in your mother's womb. I can dwell different in you than I dwelt in any building. And people still, they go, oh, when I go to that place, when I go to that place, it's in you. <laughs> Why is it different today in, the, in this building? Because you're not here. That's not a rebuke. It's snowing, I understand. But if we could grasp what it means to be the building of God, Never mind the children of light. That was the next one. We're going to have to end. Friend, in the tabernacle, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Then he said, you are the light of the world. If you look at the tabernacle, it had the outer court, the holy place, the most holy place. There were three pieces of furniture in the holy place, or three items. The candlestick, which was the menorah, the seven... It was that, it was the altar of incense, and it was the table of showbread. Table of showbread, unleavened bread, the sinless life was pointing to Christ, the bread of life to come. The altar of incense, the prayers, the fellowship of the Spirit, the prayers of the saints, rising up as a sweet-smelling aroma, and other things, but partly. The candlestick, the anointing, the wine of God, the anointing of the Spirit, with oil. All through the scripture, anointing, oil. And what's interesting, it's made, it says, it says if you go study it, there were six branches that came out of the candlestick. Six, actually says six came out of seven. Six is the number of, for man. Seven is the number for God. We were made in his image. Six came out of seven, and it had almond branches. You know, <laughs> Friends, there's so much truth in the scripture. The almond, the original Hebrew word for almond branches means to be quickened. <laughs> to be quickened. Quicken me, O Lord, according to your word. Some, some translations say revive. To be quickened by the Spirit. The candlestick stands for the anointing of God upon you. And you know what's crazy and wonderful? It was the only thing that had light 
in the most holy place. Without that, you couldn't see the bread. You couldn't see the altar. The anointing on your life, you are the light of the world. The anointing on your life is not to make you great. It's to reveal Christ, to bring light to Jesus Christ. Look unto Christ and be ye saved. So I'll pray for the sick. I will do I will whatever it is for you, the anointing on your life, let it bring light and glory to Jesus. The anointing on your life is not to make you great, it's to bring revelation, to, to bring light, illumination, so you can see the truth of God's word, that you can have fellowship with the Spirit. And it changes you. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride. We are the building of God. We are children of light. We are the pillar and foundation of truth with Christ as a cornerstone. And right now we're fasting. And you may have struggled to tie Luke 5 to what I'm saying now, but in my mind they're one and the same. We cannot afford to get trapped as a body, as a church, as believers in old motivations, in old structures, in old thinking, because God has come to make a new and living way through the relationship, through the relationship. And there are some things that are for a season, but then God will say, let's go over here. And we walk with him. We walk as children of light. Okay. <laughs> this whole series, friends, I, uh, it's going to have to come to an end today. It's obviously we didn't finish really. There's many more, many more of who the church is. I encourage you. I ask you, I plead with you, come to the truth of who God says we are. Because we have truth in our hands. And we are light in the darkness. And the world right now needs a united church. Wherever you walk, light becomes possible, not because of you. Do no work on that day and humble yourself. Why? Because of him. Because of Jesus. And fasting is a great way that God like bumps us back into our new nature. It puts us back. It makes our heart soft again. Makes us pliable in his hands. Not my will, but your will. Not my words, but your words. It changes things. I'll read you one little thing here. It's not going to come up. I didn't give it to them. My apologies. Then we'll end. Many of you may not have heard, but I know the older generations would, have, would know about the Moravians. Powerful, wonderful move of God. And uh, two young Moravians, I'm going to read this by Paris Reedhead. Two young Moravians heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner, this is, I forget the year, years ago, of a hundred years ago, where an atheist British owner had two to 3,000 slaves. The owner had said, no preacher. He was such a, he, he disliked the church, God, Christ. He was in, just antagonist. He wanted nothing to do with God. And he actually bought an island. There's a much longer story and said, we'll never have the gospel come to this island. The Bible says, do not, God will not be mocked. 
The owner had said no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. Even if he's shipwrecked, we'll we'll keep him in a separate house. This is quoting now, I'm reading. We'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave. But he's never going to talk. The power and the foolishness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's never going to talk. And he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense. 3,000 slaves from Africa brought to an island in the Atlantic. And there to live and die without hearing of Jesus Christ. Two young Moravians heard about it. So they sold themselves to the British planter. And he paid no more for them than he would for any slave. And then they, he made them use the money that they received from the sale of themselves to pay their passage out to his island, for he wouldn't even pay to transport them. As the ship left the river at Hamburg, it left its pier and was going out into the North Sea carried with the tide. The Moravians had all come, a whole group of them had come from Hernhut to see these two lads off in their early 20s, never to return again. For this wasn't a four-year term. They had sold themselves into a lifetime of slavery simply that as slaves then, they could be Christians where these slaves were. The families were there weeping, for they knew they'd never see them again, and many wondered why they were going. And they questioned the wisdom of it. And as the gap widened and the hoses had been cast off and being curled up on the pier and the boys saw the widening gap from their families, one lad with his arm linked with the arm through the arm of his friend raised his hand and shouted across the gap the last words that were ever heard from them, which were these, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And this became the call for all Moravian missions. <laughs> I pray that we ask God in our hearts, show us eternity again. Show us the truth of who we are. And show us the truth of who you are. So we mean what it means, understand, to live with eternity in our hearts. The real Christian life is the most exciting life to live. There is none like it. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the truth of your scripture. I pray where I was confusing today or where I entered that that would fall to the ground and the truth of your word would stand. In this fast, Lord, we just commit ourselves to you. We thank you that it's, we don't have to take it so seriously. We just we thank you. We humble ourselves before you. We look forward to prayer. We look forward to all the breakthroughs. But it's for you in the new and living way. And we bless you and we thank you. Amen. Love you. Bless you. Stay safe. Enjoy the Super Bowl. For those who are eating, please eat some meat for me. I would greatly appreciate it. That is all. Bless you.